Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, we're continuing our study in 1 Samuel. I'm getting away. I'm, I'm not. I don't know. Check, 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 check. I did that in the first service too, so apparently I didn't learn my lesson. I went back there and I looked. All right, now I'm on. So we're continuing our study in 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 2. If you brought your Bible, you want to start turning there. If you didn't bring a Bible, Today you ran out the door and forgot, and you want to throw your hand up, uh, we can always have somebody bring one to you. Looks like everybody's got a Bible, so we're good to go. All right. Perfect. All right, so 1 Samuel, we're going to start in chapter 2, and today we're going to make a, a, a painful transition. Last week we studied the story of Hannah, and uh, it was a beautiful story, right? It was a story where the Lord of hosts peered down through the muck and the mire of what was going on in Israel. Right, the cycle of the judges and everybody doing right in their own eyes. He peered down through that and found one faithful maiden in the middle of nowhere, and, and he honored her request. Right, and it tells us uh, the story teaches us that God is a personal God, right? A God that knows uh, when a sparrow falls out of the sky and yet numbers the hairs on our head. Right, it's, it's a story that reminds us that in God's economy. Women are every bit as valuable to God as men. That yes, God created roles for men and roles for women that are different, but their value is the same. For in his eyes, your worth is not based on whether you are a Greek or a Jew, slave or free, male or female. And it's with a heavy heart that we leave this, this little story and we travel into the darker parts of our journey. Now we're, we're going to be looking at the fall of a great house. We're going to be looking at lives that, that fail to bring us the hope that Hannah has, right? And, and these are lives that offer more than shipwrecks that warn sailors of rocky shoals hidden just under the water. And yet even in the gloom, God's light shines, right? It's, it's, it's a glimmer of pure white next to a murky pond of dead water. And it's as if the light shines all the brighter when it's juxtaposed with the spiritual darkness around it. Today we're going to witness the sinfulness and the corruption of Eli and his sons, Phineas and Hophni, as they seek to enlarge themselves while diminishing others, and, and juxtaposed or compared side by side with their evil, we will see God's plan growing in a young boy named Samuel. So if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We're in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 12. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And the custom of the priests with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all that the fork brought out, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come by and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, and he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, then take as much as you desire. Then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. And thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. 
His mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their own home. The Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time again. And we pray now that as we uh, study your truth, Lord, that you would teach us. Lord, the culture around us will tell us that there are many truths, that your truth is just as valid as my truth, just as valid as her truth, just as valid as his truth. But Lord, we know there is only one true truth, and that's your word. So Lord, we pray that you would teach us this morning, that you would move this bumbling pastor out of the way, and that your word would shine through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. May be seated. The sermon title I chose this morning was A Biblical Juxtaposition. And I chose it because we're given a very stark juxtaposition in our reading today. Now, if you are anything like me when I started studying this last week, your thought process might be going a little something like this. I wonder just what exactly is this word juxtaposition? Sounds French. I like French fries. How does McDonald's make their fries so tasty? Who was the guy that first dumped a potato in boiling hot oil and ate it? How cool did his friends think he was? And then you spend the next 15 minutes Googling the origin of French fries, which, by the way, comes from uh, Belgium, right? Not, not France, just so you know. Anyway, juxtaposition has to do with comparing two very different things side by side, and, and their differences are highlighted by the fact that they're side by side, right? And today I want to look at, at a comparison with you, the comparison of Phineas and Hophni with Samuel, the comparison of completing the outward tasks of God, of coming to church and, and doing what you're supposed to do and, and, and looking righteous versus ministering before the Lord. And then I want to look at the root cause of, of Phineas and Hophni's sin and, and what the damage that's done there. While we certainly can, and God certainly will hold Phineas and Hophni accountable for their despising the offering of the Lord, Eli was the head of the house and the high priest. So what lessons can we learn from this tragic story? So looking back at our passage, at our juxtaposition, right, we saw in the verses, uh, we read very, two very different stories. And if you go back a verse uh, before 12, if you go back to 11, what we see here is kind of a, a perfect uh, bracketing or an, an envelope there of uh, the good, right, the light. We see in verse 11, then Elkanah went uh, to his home in Ramah, but the boy, this is Samuel, ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Right? Beautiful, beautiful ending to the story. I hope this week you got a chance to read Hannah's song of thanksgiving there in chapter 2. Beautiful. And then, then we step into the muck, right? Then we get to, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. That phrase there uh, literally is, now the sons of Eli, the sons of Belial, right? And there's no verb in there. There's no verb to tell the subject what to do. It's just stated, the sons of Eli, the sons of Belial. And Belial, in the Old Testament, often means worthless or wicked, right? 
And in the New Testament, it goes so far as to actually be a name for Satan. If you see uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 15, when Paul's speaking there, he says, Or what harmony has Christ with Bilal? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Any religion that is not God's is Satan. It's a doctrine of demons. Right? It, it, it is the sons of Bilal. And we see why they're labeled the sons of Bilal. They're in the continuing verses, right? Uh, worthless men, they did not know the Lord, and the custom of the priests with the people. Right? And we know they didn't know the custom of the priests with the people because this little uh, three-pronged fork thing here isn't anywhere in the law. It's nowhere. This is the only place where it's at. Right? And so what they would do is they had this guy that would walk around. With, think of it like when you're making s'mores. you got one of those big, long sticks. Right? And you got little three prongs on there. And he'd walk around and he'd see you. Oh, and he'd stab it and he'd pull out some of that meat. Oh, this is for the priest. And he'd take it, right? And, and when he would come up and he would he would go to take it, they would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The fat's supposed to be burned because that's supposed to be something for God. Right? When You, you know when you throw the steak on the grill and, you know, and, and uh, that steam comes up and that smell. Oh, that smell, right? This is the worst thing to preach about right before lunch. Oh, it smells so good. That is a, is a, is a very human uh, picture, and it's for us. It's a, it's, it's a picture of righteousness, right? And, and it's going up to God, and, and, and the fat from the offering goes up and it rises as a pleasing aroma to God. But Phineas and Hockney were stealing that, right? And they didn't even do they didn't even do their own work. They had a guy to do it, right? The, the, this is for the priests. They were sitting back just getting fat off the, off the steaks. And you know it's bad when the congregation is more righteous than the priests, right? The congregation is like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is supposed to go to the you're supposed to give the fat to the Lord first. And they said, give it here, or else Tweedledee and Tweedledum behind me here. Right? They're always called tiny. I don't know why. Tiny, they're eight feet, you know. Tiny's going to take it from you. So you can either give it to me or Tiny will take it. Right? What was the right process? Because God did outline the right process. You can't sit there and say, well, maybe they just didn't know. They knew. They knew. Look in Leviticus, uh, starting in chapter 7. We're going to bounce around in Leviticus quite a bit. So if you, uh, you want to keep your finger in Leviticus, that will help you today. Leviticus 7, starting in verse 29. This is what they should have done. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, He who offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands are to bring offerings by fire to the Lord. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be presented as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall offer up the fat and smoke on the altar, but the breast shall belong to Aaron and his sons. And you shall give the right thigh to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifices of the peace offerings. The one among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of, of the peace offerings and the fat, the right thigh shall be his as his portion. It goes on. I'm not going to read all of it to you there, but I, I do want to read uh, jumping to verse 37. This is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, and the ordination offering, and the sacrifice of peace offerings, which the Lord commanded Moses at Mount Sinai in the day that he commanded the sons of Israel to present their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. 
There was a very definite plan. Right? God did. God doesn't leave worship to be figured out. He's very serious about worship. He's very detailed about worship. And Eli's sons were just throwing it to the wind. Their sin was that of robbing God and of perverting his worship. And God doesn't take that perversion lightly. Phineas and Hophni would have done well to remember Aaron's sons. Right? Do you remember when they thought they would enhance worship? They weren't even stealing. They just wanted to make worship a little more exciting. Right? Do a little grab. Let's add something to it. Right? So I told you we were going to be in Leviticus a lot. So Leviticus 10. Let's see what happened to uh, those, those guys. Nadab and Abihu. Abihu. Uh, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of... Uh, this is chapter 10, verse 1, sorry. Uh, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. On top of messing with the worship of God, which God obviously takes very seriously, they were stealing from God. Right? A little fat isn't bad. I mean, I watch the cooking channel. You have to render the fat to get the crispy, crunchy outside of the steak, right? How are you going to beat Bobby Flay with no fat? Well, again, it doesn't matter what I think, or even what Bobby Flay thinks. But what does God think? Back in Leviticus, Leviticus 7. Uh, starting in verse 22, and we're going to go through 26. Leviticus 7, this is what you're supposed to do with the fat. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall not eat any fat from an ox, a sheep, or a goat. Also the fat of an animal which dies, and the fat of an animal torn by beasts may be put to any other use, but you must certainly not eat it. For whoever eats the fat of the animal from which an offering by fire is offered to the Lord even the person who eats shall be cut off from his people. So they've committed a capital offense, and they've committed another capital offense, right? They should have been banished for what they were doing. Sorry, Bobby. God says no. Phineas and Hophni are ruining worship. They're stealing from God. And we've got a pretty good picture of that right now, right? So let's bring in the juxtaposition. Let's bring in Samuel. Right? Look back at 1 Samuel. Uh, chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 18. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Right? As a boy wearing a linen ephod. He was ministering before the Lord. What a beautiful picture. Can you imagine being Elkanah or, or Hannah and you come every year to offer your sacrifices and there's your boy. And he's not just doing it out of lip service. He's doing it because he loves God. That is every parent's dream. Right? And his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him year, year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. I don't want to skip past this. I don't want to overlook this. Verse 19. Like, this is the Bible. This is everything that God wants us to know, right? Everything that we're supposed to learn about God. So every sentence, every word in this book is precious. And yet God takes an entire sentence, an entire verse, and says, and his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. 
God cares about the smallest of things. Those ladies over there yesterday just sewing up a storm, right? Sewing up these little these little uh, dresses and things and shirts. God cares about that stuff. We don't see that in our culture, right? If you ask anybody out there, just, just go out into the culture and say, hey, what do you think about a bunch of ladies sitting around selling uh, pillowcase dresses? <laughs> Boring. Why would they be doing that? But when God looks down, you know what he sees? He sees the most beautiful thing on earth. That service, ministering before the Lord. And there was Hannah. Every year she'd sew in that new, new ephod, right? New little robe for him to wear. And every year they would go and offer those sacrifices. And, and, and think about that too. Because Elkanah's going there to offer sacrifices in Hannah. And who's there? Remember the three-pronged guy with Tiny? Right? And, and year after year, they keep coming, even though their leaders are failing them. Right? Bad leadership is no excuse for bad followers of Christ. You know why? Because you don't follow me. You follow Christ. And if I fall, it doesn't matter. You follow Christ. And if Phineas and Hophni fell, it didn't matter. Elkanah and Hannah followed God. Yahweh. It's interesting. If you go back to chapter 1 and you go to verse uh, 14, right? Hannah's praying and she's praying in her heart and her lips are moving, but she's not talking. And Eli says to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine for me. And Hannah replies, no, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, a daughter of Goliath. They're a sandwich family. They're very concerned about not being a daughter or a son of the law. Year after year, they go and offer their sacrifices to a corrupt temple. Not a temple, but a tabernacle. And while the sons of Eli grew their belly, right? They grew their belly off the stolen sacrifices. Samuel is growing in the Lord. And we see the decline of the house. And we see the rise of Samuel, and we'll just pass each other. So what happened? What created this massive difference? Why would one son be so dedicated to the Lord, and the other two not? Well, if you, you caught the beginning of the sermon, I wanted to, to compare Eli's sons and Samuel. But I also wanted to talk about the root of the sin of Phineas and Hophni. What could make the priests of the Lord of hosts fall into such a grievous behavior? And to do that, to, to, to look at that, I think we need to start with Eli, right? He was the head of the household. He was the high priest. And at first blush, we may miss the failure of the head of the household. Because you look at you look at verse 12, and it says they're worthless men. And you say, well, they're men. They're not kids anymore. Can we really hold Eli as, as a failure there? What about Eli's wife? Can we really hold them for what these men are? While we will all answer individually for how we used our gifts here on earth, parents, we will be asked how we treated the greatest gift that God could give us, aside from salvation, our children. Fathers, I say again, if we want to stand firm on biblical headship in the home and in the church, and I believe we should, we have to stand on that whole statement. The whole enchilada. We don't get to pick off the cheese we have to clean that whole plate. And Eli, oh, he appears to just like cheese. 
right? As high priest, Eli would have been very, very well acquainted with the instructions that Moses gave the Israelites. Uh, in Deuteronomy 6, so if you turn to Deuteronomy, I messed this up in the first service, so hopefully, yes, <laughs> this is right. Deuteronomy 6, uh, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O oh, Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Eli would have and should have been very familiar with that passage. Right? He should have known that by heart. And yet, when you look at verses 20, or starting at verse 22 there in chapter 2, back in, in 1 Samuel, we see that Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to, to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. If you look at that, the very first uh, record of, of Eli chastising his sons for their behavior is when he is very old. Very old. And, and the second thing you need to look at is it says he heard Right? He keeps saying, the people of Israel are telling you this. The people of Israel are telling you. He's high priest. How would he have not have seen the fact that this three-pronged knucklehead with tiny was going out taking meat? And we'll find out later he did see it. Third, he doesn't tell him to stop. Compare and contrast this rebuke with the one with Hannah. Right? Remember? Put away your drink. Stop drinking. He's very harsh with Hannah. But with his own sons, not so much. As parents, we have to be careful to see our children as sinners in need of a savior, just like everyone else. It's hard though, right? They are kids. Allison and I have the R bus, right? You guys know that. And we, we routinely book parties and the, we'll talk to the parents beforehand and we'll say, hey, uh, we see the painting you wanna do. How? How good is your kid at, at art? You know, how how much do they paint? Or you know, <laughs> inevitably, oh, he's Picasso. He's it's so beautiful. My my little Johnny can paint like like nobody else. And in the beginning, we got fooled by that, right? Not so much anymore. Because you get there and and they do paint like Picasso more of his interpretive period, right? And you got the nose over here and the mouth over here. And that's what kids should paint like, right? They're painting to the level of a kid. But to their parents, oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful art, right? As a father, Eli thinks he's helping his kids by not disciplining them, right? But we see there in at the end of verse 25, he's actually hating his sons. Look at that. At the end of verse 25, he says, 
But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. We see that through the years of, of shrugging his shoulders and saying, boys will be boys. <laughs> He's failed to lead his sons into a relationship with the Lord. And as the boys grew into men and began dabbling with sin, Eli thought that he was being loving by not coming down on them too hard, letting them figure themselves out, right? I wouldn't want to damage their fragile psyche. Or, or they'll come around. I mean, they're working in the church. I don't want to be too confrontational. And slowly his boys start to drift. Extra meat here, some of the fat there. It's how we all operate if we're not interrupted by the grace of God. And before you know it, it's their custom to sin, right? They didn't know the custom of the Lord. They knew the custom of sending the three-pronged guy with tiny. That was the custom. That was normal. Like I said in the first service, how long would it take for if every time David saw you, instead of giving you a hug, he smacked you in the face, right? How long would that take before it became a custom? Probably a long time. Right? Because it's not normal to smack somebody in the face. It's not normal to go with the three-pronged fork either, but it became a custom. That's how long it went on. And Eli, the high priest, just let it keep going and let it keep going. Before you realize it, the whole of Israel knows that your sons are stealing from God and treating the women of the temple like prostitutes. And that, that's when Samuel gives this milk toast rebuke, right? Eli makes a good point. If, if I sin against another man, God will, will come in between us there and mediate for us, right? But if I sin against God, who's going to be an intercessor for us? But where's this authority? It set sail 40 years ago when he thought it was cute when his kids disobeyed and disrespected him. Never mind the fifth amendment, right? Well, Eli might have not thought it was a big deal, but God certainly did. Take a look at what God thinks about the disobedience of Eli and his sons. Starting in verse 25, we just read that, right? That he said, if one man sins against another, if, but if you sin against God, and then he said, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. Jump to, jump to Romans, if you would. Romans 1. Romans 1. If you want a good uh, commentary on what's happening in our society, or what happens with sinners in, in general, the progression that it takes, Romans is a, is a great place to start. Romans 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood for what has been made, through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. There's no excuse. Everybody knows about God. No excuse. Right? But then we get to this. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. We're going to see this progression, right? They did not honor God. They did not give thanks. So therefore, they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. They darkened their own hearts. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God 
or an image in the form of corruptible man, birds, and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And then we're going to see what God does. When, when, when man demands to do it his way, when he demands to worship who he wants to worship, therefore God gave them over. He said, okay, you do it your way. He gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God said, okay, you want to do it your way? Go ahead. I'll give you over to, uh, I'll give you over to degrading passions. They're, they're already there. I've been blocking them. I'm going to take my hand back now. And I'm going to let you do whatever you want to do. And he's going to give them over there, verse 28, to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, and look at this thing hidden here in this big list of nasty things, right? Envy, murder, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And then we see the final progression here. And though they knew, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's the final step there. We start giving approval to that list there. We start saying, that's okay. And usually when somebody gives approval to sin, it's because they've got sin in their own life. And they, they feel comforted by the fact, well, that guy's doing it. I can do it too. And we see that. We go back to 1 Samuel there. And we see Phineas and Hockney, how they, they progress down that chain. And we continue there in, in chapter 2 and verse 26. And we get just a glimmer of light. Right? This, is, this is where they're passing each other. Right? Samuel's headed up. And Phineas and Hockney are headed down. They blast past each other here. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with the men. So here, here's Samuel. He's this, he's this budding light. He's getting brighter and brighter and brighter and the darkness is getting darker and darker and darker. And then we get to verse 27. Then a man of God came to Eli. We don't know who the man of God was. It doesn't matter. If the Bible doesn't tell us, it doesn't matter. What matters is he was a man of God. And it's ironic that a man of God comes to the high priest, right? So this guy goes to his boss, basically. And, and he says, thus says the Lord. Here we go. Here we go. You ready? Thus says the Lord. Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? And Eli would have had to have said yes there. Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings 
of the sons of Israel? Eli would have had to have said yes to that. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me? Just pause right there. Honor your sons above me. By, by allowing his sons to continue in their sin, by, by not removing them from the temple or the, the tabernacle, by not, by not quashing that, by not addressing that, not only is, is Eli allowing his sons to continue down this terrible path, which will have a terrible end, we'll read about that here in a second, he's also choosing his sons over God. God doesn't take that lightly. He says, he says, and you honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people of Israel. I told you. I told you, Eli was taking part in it. And we know, we know how Eli dies if you've read 1 Samuel at all. He was heavy. He hears some bad news. He freaks out, falls over, and breaks his neck because he's so heavy. Because he's been eating the fat. He's been stealing from the Lord and getting fat off the choicest offering of the people of Israel. And here it comes. Therefore, because of all of that, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I shall break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Literally, there is a day coming where I will break your arm. I will break your arm. You will be unable to even pick anything up. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel. Right? We're going to learn about that later. The ark actually gets taken by the enemies of God. The distress of my dwelling. And an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping. The, the descendants that you do have are going to weep. They're going to cry. Their soul's going to grieve. And all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. Now Eli's old and he's heavy, right? He doesn't have very long to live. And, and, and so God says, you're not going to live to see this. But I'm going to give you something, and when that happens, you will know the rest of what I said is coming. And you see this terrifying verse here, verse 34. It's, it's the proof of what God's going to do. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. And he, 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 God keeps his promises. 1 Samuel 4.10 both Hophni and Phinehas the same day, the day that the ark is stolen. They both died. Eli dies that day. God just wipes them out one day. Be not deceived. God will not be mocked. And even, you know, you, you, God is so good. Even in this dark, 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 dark thing here that's going on, he still gives us a little ray of light, right? Pops through the clouds like on a, a really cloudy day, which we don't get very many here, but you, know, you get that one little blast of sunlight. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. 
and then the clouds come back together again. And he says, everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or for a loaf of bread and say, please assign me to one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. This is the equivalent to, to somebody walking up to the CEO of Google, right? Or, or the president and saying, what's going to happen is you guys are going to fall to the point where you're going to come in and you're going to ask for a job in the mailroom just so you can eat. This was a powerful house. They were, they were very influential. He was the high priest. Not, they're not going to do what God says. The failure of a head of a house ultimately leads to its destruction. Our actions can, like Hannah and Elkanah, have beautiful results. Our inactions, like Eli, can bring terrible pain. I'm going to close now with a prayer from some reading I was doing this week. And when I finish, our worship team will lead us in one last song before we go. If you are here today and you have realized that your heart is not God's, that, that maybe you come to church and, and you go through the motions and you do the up, down, up, down, you know, throw a couple bucks in the plate, I'm good, but your heart is not to Christ. You are not his. If you realize that today, I'll wait here for the first part of the song there. If you want to come on up, I'd love to share Jesus with you. If you want to just come on up and pray, either with myself or just by yourself, feel free. Come on up. But my challenge to all of us this week is to examine our hearts and ask the hard question, does my heart match my actions? Does my heart match what I try to make people think about me? Or are there some things that I need to work on with the Lord? Let's pray. Holy Father, it is a fearful thing to fall into your hands. Your throne is established in righteousness and judgment. The liar and the evil person will not live in your sight. You are angry with the wicked every day. You give no peace to them. You withhold all enduring blessings from those whose hearts go astray from righteousness. You drive the priest from priesthood, the minister from the pulpit, the head of the house from his family circle. You drive out the evil-minded man. You scourge those who do not know your purity and your love. You vindicate the righteousness of your name by terrible judgments in the earth. We come to you as the God of mercy, as well as the God of judgment. We are now on praying ground. We may now plead mightily with thee for the exercise of your pardoning mercy, lest we too be condemned and carried in the whirlwind of your just anger. God, be merciful to us sinners. Save us in the hour of temptation. Deliver us when the enemy would carry us away captive at his will. And when the great enemy of souls would come in as a flood, lift up your spirit as a standard against him. If you hold us up, we will be safe. If you loose your hand from ours, Behold, we cannot stand. Have us in your holy keeping. Establish our hearts in the precepts and the statutes of all your will, and grant that, having served our day and generation with all simplicity, trust, meekness, and strength, we may be called to enter into the rest eternal as thine own vision. Amen.